Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. The Life of John D., translated from the Latin of Dr. Thomas Smith by William Alexander Eiton, read for hermeticpodcast.com by Frater R.C. London, The Theosophical Publishing Society, 1908. Preface. From the earliest dawn of the history of the human race, there have been special epochs when a great wave of what is called occult science seemed to be impelled upon the minds of mortals, awakening them to a sense of something higher than the ordinary routine of life. Such periods have culminated in some great advance in civilization and the beneficent temporary reign of adepts. We need only refer to the ancient Aryan civilization, the Assyrians, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Egyptian, the Greek with its Eleusinian mysteries, the Jewish following the laws of Moses. We have said reign of adepts. Moses was an adept, uninitiated in the mysteries of Egypt. Solomon was an adept. Volney has portrayed the ruin of empires. The cause of their destruction was that the successors of the reigning adepts had abused the great powers inherited from them, and instead of the happiness conferred by the true adepts, the people suffered and groaned under the miseries inflicted by despots and cruel tyrants. In the earlier part of last century, there was the rise of another wave of occultism, beginning with spiritualism, mixed good and evil arose out of this beginning, and some of the risks of untrained communion with the unseen world which beset modern spiritualism are aptly illustrated in the life before us. The spiritualistic movement might be regarded as a pioneer, being appropriately succeeded by the advent of the late Madame Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society, in conjunction with Colonel Olcott. Their self-denying efforts have carried this wave to the remotest parts of India, renewing, with the interest of its intelligent natives in the wisdom and revelations contained in their long-neglected ancient scriptures, the Vedas, and leading the East to coalesce with the West in developing the higher powers, which by gradual evolution will eventually efface the present miserable state of society, and... Quote, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This development of man's higher powers is not without great dangers. It cuts both ways. A man by its means may become either a god or an incarnation of evil. Madame Blavatsky several times cautioned me against putting in practice the directions contained in various books upon yoga, which she said contained blinds, and were misleading and fraught with disastrous consequences. Dr. D. was an eminent and melancholy example of the great dangers incurred by those who rush into the practice of any form of occultism, whilst retaining the egoism which is a part of the lower instincts of human nature. All who aspire to the knowledge and practice of occultism should make themselves acquainted with the details of the life of Dr. D., so well narrated by the learned Dr. Smith. For this reason I have translated it from the original Latin. Dr. D. had attained to great knowledge in mathematics and was a most industrious student of and proficient in 
all arts and sciences. His life was at first pure and blameless, and he was respected and honored by the learned of various countries, and was a special favorite of Queen Elizabeth. From this high estate he fell to the lowest depths of degradation and charlatanry, because he indulged himself in the idea that he was selected above all others to receive communications from spirits. He was unmindful of the old adage, Quanto superiores simus tanto geramus sumisius. This saying is really derived from the adepts. We might give several instances of others who have erred in the same way and have suffered accordingly, but it would make this preface too long. Alexander Eiton The Life of John Dee, an English Mathematician, by Thomas Smith, Doctor of Sacred Theology and Presbyter of the Anglican Church, London, at David Mortier in the street called The Strand at the sign of Erasmus. 1700 and seven. John Dee first drew the breath of life at London on the thirteenth day of the month of July at four o'clock and eleven minutes p.m. in the year of the eternal incarnated word, 1527. His father was Roland Dee, an honorable man and coming of a family sufficiently genteel, whose care, according to the affection implanted by nature towards his own son, as well as his being a boy of great hope and good disposition, was chiefly bestowed in informing his mind with Greek and Latin literature. The curriculum of the studies in which boys are accustomed to be taught, being happily passed, partly at London, partly at Chelmsford, in the county of Essex, he was entered by his most loving father in the sixteenth year of his age at Cambridge, in the college dedicated to the memory of St. John the Evangelist, to be taught the higher sciences at the end of the year 1542. Having put on the academic gown, whether by the advice and warning of his friends or by his own will and virtue, and inflamed by a most ardent love of learning, at that dangerous age, mostly obnoxious and too much given to sloth and luxury, he was sufficiently aware that not without great industry could a great fame of learning be acquired. With most persevering and indeed almost incredible labor, as if under the obligation of a sacred vow, he determined that by no pleasures, no blandishments, or by importunate invitations would he be dragged away. In perusing his books according to a plan prescribed in that academy for instructing youth, under the care of a painstaking tutor, he was content with the moderate sleep of four hours every night, and two hours for the time of dinner and supper, with other relaxations necessary to preserve life and health only interposed. The remaining eighteen hours, deducting therefrom the intervals for public prayers in the chapel, at which he was bound to be present, with inviolable pertinacity, he cheerfully devoted and consecrated to study. After taking the degree of B.A., the same love of learning and persevering study remained, and already maturing with the judgment of a year, every kind of science from the encyclopedia, the whole of which to be accurately embraced, he had found out by experience to far surpass human powers. Weighing the 
matter well in his mind, the advantage seemed to be to cultivate them more shortly, according to the conditions of his life, from a vehement natural inclination, which wisdom, having well weighed all the circumstances, more and more confirmed, he easily perceived that the mathematical discipline was to be placed far above all others. The better and the more easily to attain this end, when few of our forefathers at that time were eminent in that respect, as being chiefly occupied in theological disputations, or in defending the actions of the crown against the usurpations of the Roman court. In the month of May 1547 he sailed from England to Belgium, in order to enter into friendship with certain great men, such as Gemma Frisio, Gerard Mercator, Gaspar a Mirica, Antonio Gava, and others learned in these sciences, that being helped by their advice as to what was to be done by him in that race just to be run, he might more auspiciously understand. For what was it not lawful to hope for a disciple of such an elevated disposition and powerful understanding from such masters? Nor was the success less than the expectations, yea, Everything turned out according to his wishes. After some months, on his return to Cambridge, he brought with him the astronomical staff and ring, both of brass, recently made by him, and two large globes of Mercator, which afterwards he gave to the library of the College of the Holy Trinity for the use of the fellows and students. He indeed, for many years, gave himself up to the contemplation of the celestial orbs, having made some thousands of observations, for the most part marked with the hours and minutes, which he arranged in ephemerides and notebooks, also to investigating the motions and distances of the stars, and the powers and influences thence derived to this elementary world, and the manners and fortunes of men, chiefly, as it seems, being occupied in searching the fallacious and altogether uncertain conjectures, and adding to the study of the pure astronomy the idle stories of the astrologers, with which he was desperately in love, according to the bent of his genius. But when King Henry VIII had built in that academy, the magnificent college dedicated to the honor of the undivided trinity, our D was considered worthy to be enrolled amongst the first fellows, and soon after was appointed, in the same place, the second prelector of the Greek language. Not long after he took pains to exhibit the comedy of Aristophanes, whose title is Peace, in which a representation was made of a beetle flying to the palace of Jupiter with a man carrying a basket, at the sight of which all present were astonished in some altogether ignorant of the mechanical art, spread reports as though D, being already initiated into the magical arts, had effected that wonderful thing by the help of demons. So that from his youth, whether rightly or wrongly, he drew upon himself the evil report of sorcery and magic, of which the suspicion in the minds of many had reached such a height that by no excuse and defense, even by no sacred declaration against it, was he able to clear himself of it. In the year 1548, crowned with the laurel of Master of Arts, he soon again left England, bidding farewell forever to Cambridge, 
Whether he believed that he would make greater progress abroad in the abstruse sciences, after which he so diligently sought, or that, free from the censures and accusations of friends, as if he had given his endeavors to illicit arts, he was at liberty to do what he liked, and would give effect to it with greater ease and less inconvenience, relying on himself alone and free from alien judgment and advice, or whether, from other causes, is altogether uncertain. For from this time it appears to me to be very much like the truth, that Dean nourished vain hopes in his mind, although under the specious pretext that he at length at some time or other would attain to what is scarcely ever given to mortals, that is to attain to pure truth and the discovering the treasures of celestial wisdom, and thence from the study of the mathematical sciences, physics, and chemistry of penetrating into the secrets of nature and the more profound secrets of natural as of divine things, and of introducing a new, and that manifestly a mystical philosophy, which, as it were, was considered worthless and altogether to be repudiated, according to the then common opinion, and at length that he hoped to gain an advantage to himself from the indulgence of a vain and altogether to be condemned curiosity amongst all, the habit of consulting him. The impiety of this purpose he wished to hide from everyone's sight under the plausible pretext of the mathematical sciences, as though under a specious covering. No one well skilled in these things has denied that Dee deserved the praise of being a great mathematician, as his published works testify. In the meantime, to me, pondering carefully concerning him, and indeed with a serious mind, it is manifestly proved that conjecture ought to be admitted as the key to the darkened senses of the mind, which he, with cunning self-deceit, cherished as being opened, which afterwards will more clearly appear. In this mind, in the same year, having left his country, furnished with testimonial letters of the University of Cambridge, he went to the Academy of Louvain, which was flourishing under men most skilled in all kinds of sciences, where, for a time, having taken up his abode, displayed the wealth and gifts of his genius with crafty modesty, and gained for himself a great fame for his learning, being openly held in great honor, as in frequent letters, as though an oracle and as a new master of the more recondite wisdom, being consulted on all sides, where the fame of his admiration and praises was spread. For hither, for the sake of seeing him there, resorted noblemen, Spaniards, Italians, and others from the court of Charles V, at that time attended at Brussels by a most splendid retinue of princes and magnates. Indeed, they assembled in a not moderate number, whither his fame conveyed daily to most eager and most astonished ears about to experience that it had not exaggerated in this matter, and whether it was to be lessened by his presence. Amongst others were conspicuous the Duke of Mantua and the Duke Ludovicus de la Cerda, afterwards distinguished by the title of Duke of Medina Celi. But I must refrain from recounting all the names of the other ordinary persons desirous of entering the Temple of D 
whom either his Caesarian majesty or the desire of cultivating the arts had drawn into that region. Thus, amongst some foreigners, his praise was spread, nor was he in less favor with his own English fellow countrymen dwelling also in Belgium, amongst whom was William Pickering, a most elegant young man, sprung from a noble family, and afterwards honored with the knightly dignity, and notable in embassies in Gaul and Germany, who was received into his house, inasmuch as he was a recompensed host, that he might with the greater convenience be taught the use of the astronomer's staff, the astrolabe, and the globes. But since he had a versatile genius, for the sake of his mind and the mathematical studies being for a short time interrupted, he wished to explore the methods and rules of the civil law. This, indeed, he did with great success, as in solving some clashings of laws, and in explaining many obscure and intricate laws, and was said to be happily engaged in clearing them up with a new light which the Academy of Louvain acknowledged by a public testimonial. Having passed two years at Louvain, straightway in the month of July, 1550, by a quick journey of four days he hastened to Paris, where every kind of good literature not long since introduced under the auspices, patronage, and munificence of Francis I, King of France, very greatly flourished. But in that, most compact crowd of students assembling thither from almost all quarters of the Christian world, his advent could not long be concealed, whether through a vain itching of showing through himself the science of the secrets of nature and the inner philosophy, hitherto unknown which he had arrogated to himself, or whether easily overcome by the importunate prayers of those of the same nationality, that thence a greater honor might be derived to their common country. He undertook gratis, publicly to explain and interpret by himself the elements of the geometry of Euclid, but evidently by a new method, i.e. mathematically, physically, and pythagorically. But as soon as he made it known that lectures on this subject would shortly be given in the Remensian College, such was the rush of auditors that the school did not suffice to hold them. The rest, shut out by the narrowness of the place, climbed to the windows as far as the hall, lest they should be deprived of that gratification. These, whether struck by the greatness or by the wonderful novelty of the things which he spoke with a voluble utterance and an easy flow of words, and indeed, as it seems, with the greatest confidence, with one mind presaged the greatest of all sorts of things from these most praiseworthy beginnings, for he had not as yet completed his twenty-fourth year, being steadfast in a good and firm hope that he would surpass others habitually devoted to the maxims of the ancient philosophy already obsolete. Because that in explaining the definitions of Euclid, representing to the eyes that which had been possible to be perceived solely by the intellect and imagination, exquisitely and accurately he produced a greater astonishment in their minds than he had formerly done at his own University of Cambridge by the artifice of the flying beetle. Hence many, excelling in learning and capacity, when from these frequent public instructions and private conversations they were abundantly satisfied, anxiously and diligently sought his friendship, which afterwards, 
with all obsequiousness and affection, they cultivated in the converse of literature. Such were Orentius Miraldus, Petrus Montoreus, Ranconetus Danesius, Jacobus Silvius, Jacobus Gupilus, Turnibus, Strasselius, Vico Marcatus, Pascasius, Hamelius, Petrus Ramus, Gulielmus, Postellus, Fernelius, Ioannis Magniennus, Ioannis Apenia, and Petrus Nonius, the most of whom were illustrated from their published writings. Not with these, only with whom he was in familiar conversation whilst he was in France, but also with other most learned men at Aurelia, Cologne, Heidelberg, Strasbourg, Verona, Padua, Urbino, Rome, and other principal cities and academies of the Christian world. Publicly teaching judicial astrology and philosophy, he again engaged in the same literary commerce in alternate, frequent epistolary correspondence, which, if it were still extent, would render not a moderate light to that kind of sciences. He might indeed have been numbered among the royal mathematical professors, with an annual salary of two hundred crowns, being appointed in an office shortly to become vacant and waiting for the succession, had he wished to make delay. But he evidently did not wish to be made a naturalized Frenchman, nor that liberty should be taken from him either of returning into his own country or otherwise of travelling to any foreign part whither his mind was strongly inclined. Also, with an equal firmness of purpose, he obstinately refused other most favourable offers made to him by the most illustrious men, Rohanius and Monclusius, immediately to undertake the embassy to the emperor of the Turks, lest he might appear to have given up his natural right if he had passed over to a foreign dependency. In the meantime, every ingenious person easily conceded that it was a manifest indication as well of an exalted mind, by no means to be shut up in a narrow space of that sort. Also, of the great esteem and fame which he had acquired with the French. At the close of the following year, having returned into England, he perceived that not those rewards of his studies, not those useful fruits which he had expected, were going to be bestowed upon him, whether it was that he was destitute of help and the commendation of great men, or oppressed by irremovable prejudices, for scarcely does that honorary gift of a hundred crowns a year by the indulgence of Edward the Sixth deserve to be mentioned, does not appear. Not, however, did he remit anything of assiduous labor and industry to his studies, being greatly intent upon them day and night. But afterwards, to lighten his troubles, and to mitigate, in some measure of his life distracted with domestic anxieties, his income was increased by being presented to the rectory of Upton, not far from the banks of the Severn and Longden. After the death of Edward the Sixth, Mary, his eldest sister and first-born daughter of King Henry the Eighth, took possession of the throne. But in that fatal change of things for us which followed, religion being changed throughout all England, Dee for a little while suffered some evil treatment, and also on account of the pretended crime of heresy 
for he was included amongst those good Orthodox Christians refusing to embrace the portentous dogma of transubstantiation, and also chiefly on account of a far more atrocious, scandalous action charged upon him. For they said that he, by sorcery and certain magical incantations, had attempted to take the life of the queen." a wickedness to be expiated by tearing out the nails and avenging flames if there was anything of truth in those fables spread amongst the common people. For of this impious deed being accused by two secret informers, he underwent a severe examination at Hampton Court, firstly in four articles alleged by John Bourne, the secretary, and afterward in other eighteen charges by the councillors assembled together, before whom he was ordered to respond. After being for some time detained there in the custody of the sergeants, and thence carried off to London, he was arraigned finally to be examined before D. Brooke, the justice of the common pleas. At last, after some weeks, when the whole thing was debated in the Star Chamber at Westminster, the proper tribunal for adjudicating upon criminal charges of that sort, he so strongly and clearly defended his innocence that he was absolved by his judges from all suspicion of treasonable practices. But when in other points of religion he was considered not to be sufficiently Romanistic in his opinions, being acquitted by the secular court, he was relegated to Bonner, the Bishop of London, or Inquisitor, whom our countrymen from his continued cruelty exercised towards the Protestants still call the Bloody Bonner, to be kept in custody in his palace, at which time he had, as his companion Bartlett Green, afterwards burned for heresy, as they call it. At length, by the special favor of Philip and Mary, when some had advised that he should be sentenced to the workhouse for all his life, by letters of counsel dated the twenty-ninth day of August, 1553, a surety being insisted on that when required he should appear and in the meantime should conduct himself well, he stepped forth from his long-continued imprisonment. Before this cruel time arose, which had almost prostrated him in the shipwreck of his fortunes, his liberty and life being invited by the heads of the University of Oxford, there to teach the mathematical sciences, he turned deaf ears to it. By no earnest requests, by no promises to be induced to undertake that noble and honorable profession. For what causes is uncertain, unless perhaps he was unwilling to be bound within the narrowness of one place, as though ascribed to servitude and the soil, or because that he feared lest any one of a versatile genius from the then established custom being admitted to familiar conversations at all hours should, as if doing another thing, creep into the secret places of the museum and explore with spying eyes the secrets of the unlawful arts in investigating which he was most earnestly engrossed. In the midst of these times of violence, D. did not neglect the care of literature. 
but especially bent his praiseworthy efforts to procure and preserve ancient manuscript volumes and public written deeds. For he had seen in the monasteries destroyed and pillaged under Henry VIII the literature belonging to the houses either miserably torn in pieces or consumed in the flames from the wantonness of unlearned and superstitious men, or dispersed on all sides into private hands, or for lining the inside of chests, or of lighting the fire in the place of other fuel, or to serve filthy uses. Nevertheless, he rejoiced that there were remaining a few relics, as it were, precious writings from that shipwreck, still floating, and not as yet sunk, from that horrid destruction of religious houses not valued rightly and for their true value during the reign of Edward the Sixth, but rather esteemed contemptuously and at worst. He, being earnestly moved by the indignity of the whole thing, the better to remedy this more and more increasing evil, and lest from the ignorance and rage of the possessors, or lest foreigners, according to their custom, desiring for gain to carry off these libraries by fraud, the whole should perish, or here, by a light casting away, they should be dispersed, assisted in sending a petition to Queen Mary, that by the royal authority commissioners might be appointed who, upon diligent inquisition being made throughout all England, should collect together these spoils with those in private possession, whether by theft or by purchase, or by gift and legacy, or by whatever means acquired, a just agreement being made, so that in the royal library which he presently persuades them to build, deposited in that sacred place for ages to come the manuscripts, might be free from all loss, injury, and violence of robbers, and might be preserved as well as for the use of the people of the kingdom, as for that of the whole republic of letters. But that sacred affair, for so I think it should be called, whether because shortly before Mary's departure from among the living, or whether from I know not what sad obstacle intervening, came to nothing, nor, as far as I know, was anything done in this matter. However, I have no doubt but that all good men to whom these studies shall be delightful will with me praise the piety without disguise, the extraordinary love of this recondite learning, the strong and constant mind, and finally, the honest zeal for the common good of his country, of D. in his petition, which I have copied from his writing on parchment, fortified by the strongest arguments and reasons of religious and political wisdom. In the month of November in the year 1558, Queen Mary, departing out of this life, to be heaped up with great praises on account of her excellent gifts of mind, except that, towards the subdued Protestants who, had deserved well of her from a blind and immoderate belief in the Roman superstition, she raged in a violent way and with capital punishment. Elizabeth, the second-born daughter of King Henry the Eighth, an august virgin, ascended the royal throne of her noble ancestors. For her solemn inauguration, whilst all things were held prepared according to the ancient rite, Dee was consulted on this matter by Sir Robert Dudley, afterwards Count Leicester, and asked and ordered to undertake it. Concerning a most auspicious and specially appropriate day on which it should be held under a favoring and friendly star, he prepared a scheme 
elaborated according to the rules of judiciary astrology, in which he had lately shown himself proficient, a collection of the things declared by the maxims of the masters of this divine science. He appeared to have deserved pardon for this derided folly, from his good will and desire to please by which he was induced to perform it. This advantage nevertheless accrued to him, because that he began to become known to the queen and her ministers and others of a special dignity and of note in the palace. But when, after long expectation, he had at length perceived himself to be deprived of all hope of obtaining an annual stipend, whether as a reward for or in aid of his studies, and that there was nothing forthcoming beyond bland words and vague promises, which were by no means to be trusted to, either through weariness or through indignation, a third time he voyaged to Belgium. He again flattered himself that his fortunes would be better increased in foreign countries, and that more prosperous times would turn up, or that his studies could be better proceeded with than at home, where, from his rash design of applying to the new philosophy, and where, indeed, the mystical, untoward, and evil superstitions greatly increased more and more from day to day. Nor did he resolve with himself to stay here long on account of the vehement ardor of his mind and great desire of traveling in foreign parts, for none of the learned men, wheresoever living who, according to common report, were held to be eminent above others in philosophical sciences, mathematics, and chemistry, sought friendships more anxiously. No one investigated the secrets of curious learning, whatsoever they might be hitherto plunged in the deepest darkness, and which lay hidden from vulgar eyes with equal subtlety and diligence. Herein is seen the special purpose both of his journeys and his studies, the rest being considered as only supplementary, lest his good name should be deemed to be lacking in its most praiseworthy and most useful application to human life and the charming science of astrology." In the year 1563, having for this cause wandered over Germany, in the month of September, he went to Prince Posonius just after Buda, a city of Hungary, was taken by the Turks. Here Maximilianus II, king of the Romans, Bohemia, and Hungary, having lately recovered his crown, at that time held a most splendid court. After his return, at the beginning of the next year, the first production of his laboring and not fortunately fruitful genius not long before conceived and formed at London, he brought forth into the divine atmosphere of the light at Antwerp in the year 1564, another edition appearing at Frankfurt in the year 1591, inscribed to the same emperor which he made famous with the title of the monad hieroglyphically, mathematically, magically, cabalistically, and anagogically explained. In this the silly trifler, as in the delusions of the Jewish Kabbalists and the triflings of the Pythagoreans and the secrets lying hid, in the seal of Hermes, numbers being variously conjoined, is given up entirely to searching out the hieroglyphic characters. In an inflated spirit and style, he declares with a wonderful confidence that he had revealed the understanding and discovery of the virtues of the supercelestial and metaphysical influences, also of the mystery of the alphabet of the learned, 
even of the three learned languages, searched out and finally unveiled the rare and most excellent secrets, and that no explanation similar and equal to this had ever appeared, and evidently seized with a fanatical fury the altogether inspired boasting, he pretends that God had given to him both the will and the divine power of opening out this mystery to all. To disarm whatever censure might be made against this madness and foolish trifling stories, which any one of sober mind or with the slightest inspection would despise and condemn, he took care to prefix a certain oval figure, comprehended under the four forms perpendicularly joined to one another alternately, together with the symbols of the four elements placed at the four corners, with this title, quote, Who does not understand should either learn or be silent. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticsciencenterprises.co.uk. Diving deep into the practices and reality tunnels of the esoteric and the occult, check out Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast, where I interview practicing occultists, do book reviews, and much more. Check us out on YouTube, Red Circle, and many other podcast platforms. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Having returned into England, he presented this little work as though it were most especially worthy to be received and handled by a royal hand, to Queen Elizabeth, then staying in her palace at Greenwich near London to avoid the summer heat. She vouchsafed to look hastily through it, he being present, saying she would forthwith become his disciple, and that if he was willing to disclose the secrets of that book, she also was willing to learn and to put it in practice. In the meantime, lest the miserable D should be sad and sick of mind, she, from the goodness of her disposition, graciously and benevolently promised to favor his studies. 
but whatsoever was afterwards objected to it by the most learned men of both universities, he was accustomed to silence by this one answer, that they had so found fault with and censured that book, because they did not altogether understand it. So great indeed was the obstinacy which had entered into his mind, that by no arguments could it be expelled. That this mystic work might be the better understood, D, for his part, determined to republish the little book which first appeared unamended of the printer's errors, but later corrected and more accurate, viz. definitive preliminary instructions concerning certain preeminent virtues of nature. He described this book to his old friend Gerard Mercator as a remembrance of his esteem and gratitude. But in this little book, he thought so highly of himself that he dared to extol its excellencies with the greatest confidence to noblemen of the greatest dignity as well as to the queen herself. In the month of February in that year, being admitted to the presence of the Queen in the palace at Westminster, he had a private conversation with her concerning the great secret of the chemists, which Nicholas Grotius, formerly one of the secretaries of the Emperor Charles V, solely out of good will to Dee, had himself undertaken to reveal free from involved and perplexing difficulties. But under some conditions to Dee, more discreetly persuaded him to conceal it being content to testify in general terms that God best knew what sort of hindrances prevented the perfecting of this thing, as if the thing were concluded in that assertion, or that from fear or from modesty he would have been altogether ashamed to make it known in writing. From the future course of Dee's life, it will be shown that he had long before applied his mind and made endeavors to find out that famous red powder, commonly called the Stone of the Philosophers. In the year 1570, Dr. Henry Billingstein's published in English at London for the use of our forefathers the whole books of Euclid, to which was prefixed by D. a long, indeed, but also a most learned preface, including the circle of nearly all the mathematical sciences concerning the universe, which and what they are, and also concerning their use and benefit, as far as they can be extended for the understanding of visible things and the common uses of human life. He descants at large with a subtle wit and wonderful sagacity, interspersed with famous documents and mechanical inventions as well as various theorems, corollaries, and explanations added over and above in the thirteenth book. Forsooth, this occasion being chosen for vindicating his fame from the suspicion of illicit and infamous arts, he roars, he is indignant, he exclaims against his railers who, through lack of knowledge or malevolence or malignity of mind as he contends, had accused him of magic. But between retorting upon those conscious of this execrable wickedness, this very thing most greatly galled his mind, and he gave way to the heaviest and scarcely to be borne grief of heart. But that indeed was in vain. As from other defences published by him against repeated criminations of the same sort, we shall see hereafter. 
Meanwhile, his domestic affairs were as yet uncertain and disordered, nor had he obtained anything else by which he might be secure in his future fortunes. Beginning to be more and more mentally wearied and agitated by a troubled mind, he again left his country, either seeking by that means to lighten his contracted sorrow, or by traveling in foreign parts to gather more plentiful fruits of the secret wisdom. In the year 1571 he departed, furnished with a royal safe conduct, and other provisions such as become a nobleman, and with commendatory letters to the ambassadors performing public business at the court of their princes, if perhaps he should desire to pass through their empires and territories, being provided by way of greater convenience and security for the journey with two servants accompanying him riding on horseback. But whilst he was dwelling in Lotharingia, he labored under a long illness, and that a dangerous one, so that he was hardly expected to live, which, when it was certainly made known to Queen Elizabeth, she being not a little anxious about the longer continuance of his life, ordered two medical men from Hampton Court to hasten thither forthwith, and also a certain noble courtier that they should have a care of his health, giving advice and remedies, but the latter that he should console his sick mind with pleasant discourse." Of so great importance did it seem that D should be cured of that disease and kept alive. To inquire into the cause of this anxiety will seem imprudent, but to determine anything on this matter that I consider evidently as a folly to be deplored. Having returned, at what time is uncertain, to his own house in the town called Mortlake, prettily situated on the banks of the Thames in the county of Surrey, about eight miles from London and three from Richmond, with a noble royal palace where the Queen was accustomed sometimes to breathe the air of the country and to enjoy the delights of a clearer sky. It being so far distant, he betook himself thither, free from the noise and tumult of the city and the abundance of visitors in this pleasant retreat, to himself alone and the muses whom he reverently treated by continual study and unwearied vigils, far from every busy and troublesome looker-on. That which verily he very greatly desired and most carefully sought after, that he hitherto concealed, reposed secretly in his breast, as though a horrible mystery he might more opportunely and conveniently be free from. But afterwards, his paternal inheritance and goods being much diminished as much by his journeyings as in his library in books every kind, especially manuscripts obtained everywhere at the highest price, in the construction of mathematical instruments and in the practice of chemistry and occult philosophy, whither he should turn was clearly doubtful. Already distrusting the promises of the courtiers, he had begun to think of marriage, to seek in contracting matrimony a greater help and more certain soother of life, which he could not elsewhere find, a woman indeed of a good family and a large fortune. Which desire that he might at length accomplish it, the matter being consulted about with his friends, he obtained by request from the Queen, Count Leicester, and Sir Christopher Hatton, afterwards Chancellor of England, and both of the highest estimation at court, letters in his favour and honour to his future wife. wife. 
In the year of 1572, there appeared in the heavens, in the constellation Cassiopeia, a new and shining star, which turned the eyes of all towards it. But whilst the populace, out of an inveterate error arising from ignorance and superstition, were struck with terrific fear at the dire events about to arise from this precursor of evil, the cultivators of celestial wisdom were seized with admiration at the infinite wisdom and power of the great architect of the universe, and were occupied in the most laudable manner in investigating the motions of this phenomenon. I should be silent as to the labors and studies of that great man, Tycho Brahe, because that matter is not here in question. Others who were here in England gave their ardent and zealous attention, genius, industry, and high powers of mind to the contemplation of the heavenly bodies, amongst whom must be justly accounted Thomas Diggs, a Kentish man sprung from a noble family, and R.D. Both of these contended that that declared opinion was most false, which insisted that comets subsisted beneath the orb of the moon in the form of meteorological vapors, having on this occasion sought it out by demonstration from the positions, distances, and magnitudes of the new stars and comets, which, that it might be made more clear, they then, having first taken counsel together, undertook to elucidate separately the doctrine of parallax, on which those demonstrations depend, no one being privy to it or supervising it. So by the wings, or mathematical ladders, the remotest stages of the visible heavens can be climbed and the paths of the planets explored by new and unheard of methods, as also this portentous star in the parts of the northern world shining with an unusual splendor, at an immense distance and of extraordinary magnitude. Its situation at the startling distance and an astonishing wonder of God shown to the inhabitants of the earth can be known most clearly. But this is in the heart of the paralactical commentary and practice, which, whilst the works in the studies of Diggs were hindered, being excluded from the printing press, he permitted them to be sent over to be annexed to his own, and they were published together in London in the year 1573. In both a method of finding the parallaxes of the planets and stars by a truly short method without any use of logic, which occurs perplexed and intricate in Ioannis Regiomantinus, is there illustrated and made easy to be understood, and a few defects of Perbacius being made good, not, however, without the most honorable and most just celebration of the praises due to these two restorers of astronomy. This, as it were, the forerunner of a far greater work, being first published, D. treated the argument at length, and in the same year completed it in three books bearing this title, Concerning the Wonderful Star in the Constellation of Cassiopeia, sent from the heavens as far as the orb of Venus, and again drawn back perpendicularly into the innermost part of heaven." to which he added a smaller treatise inscribed Hipparchus Revived as a Necessary Appendix. 
but as well in the preface as in the short introduction, out of the gratitude and respect towards his own preceptor and friend, and having regard to public utility, to bring to remembrance his most clear proposition, digs rights to all ingenious students of astronomy. His words, although perhaps they may appear too prolix, since that book after 130 years is very rarely to be found, with the pardon of the learned and studious reader, I will not, as I hope, trouble him by referring to it. In the preface, quote, But I have determined not to write more concerning the history of this star, because that most excellent man, John Dee, since he is to be admired in other kinds of philosophy, as well as being most skilled in these sciences, whom I venerate as being to me another mathematical parent, for in my most tender age he implanted in my mind the seeds of these most delightful studies, and in the most friendly and faithful manner nourished and added to other things taught me by my own father, took upon himself to treat upon this material, which I doubt not he will so complete, that in a short time it will redound to the glory of the most beneficent and most high God, and to the delight of students of the mathematical arts, their utility and the greatest admiration. In the introduction, and although I shall altogether complete this little work, perhaps not an ordinary one, without any human aid, nevertheless, that no injury be done to any one, it pleaseth me to testify publicly in a few words what follows. After that I had brought those my discoveries concerning parallaxes into regular order, and completed with all numbers into the form of this little book. I communicated with my most learned friend, Dr. John D., who forthwith showed me also a demonstration, clear, easy, and most worthy of the greatest praise, by him lately discovered and told me besides that he had an intention in his mind to search out the most subtle parallaxes of this rare phenomenon, by other methods also never before used, and in order that he might most truly attain to that, he invented very many instruments, new and unused, sparing no expenses, nor labor of body or mind, with wonderful industry and incredible skill, at its first appearance night and day, when it could be seen the place, motion, and various altitudes of the phenomenon. He observed with wonderful ingenuity and most subtle devices, by which he might be able to give most exactly the varieties of all the parallaxes which hitherto had taken place. But as the full history of so great a thing could not be given in a short space of time, in order that little book already prepared for printing was first destined to come forth into the light, lest also the praise due to his own discovery should by chance somewhat obscure the older edition of this my little work, this he asked to join to it as well from the likeness of our minds and studies as from the long-continued and ancient friendship, so also the law of nature also most straitly requires that his own should be given to every one both in great things and in small. Whilst therefore you will be able, if I may so say, to touch the thing itself with your fingers by means of his night studies, with these ladders to climb the heavens, and to be eye-witnesses yourselves of these mysteries, 
by which the mind is rendered more sublime, you will also be able by them, if you shall wish, to prove the truth of the thing. You will be more quick-witted and more fit judges to thoroughly appreciate his truly Herculean labors in this Olympic contest. When the greatly favorable report of Dee's most well-filled library, and of those admirable things and of curiosities both of nature which he had collected in his travels, and also of art which he had fabricated by his own ingenuity, was spread abroad, the queen, being not lightly touched with a desire of seeing him, attended by a great guard of courtiers in the year 1575, went to his house." and presently learning that the funeral of his wife had taken place but a few hours before, was unwilling to enter, nor indeed did it please her to return with the intention altogether unaccomplished. Had Dee called before her, ordering that in her presence should be produced that artificial glass or globe or concave mirror or geometrical instrument, for neither is it designated by a special name, nor does the inventor describe its form and figure, nor those wonderful properties which he had before said to be in it, somewhat to be represented, if not to the eyes, at least to be so explained, that before them they might be able to bring some kind of truth to form faith. D. reports, out of whose own handwriting I now write these things, that he himself explained that on the part of the queen she was abundantly satisfied, and that she was filled with a not moderate pleasure, and that she departed pleased, giving him thanks. To me, indeed, it seems that these wonderful performances, whatsoever and how great soever they might be, were not produced by the deceit and cunning slights of the juggler's art, nor from the working of demons, but from the greatest either subtlety or skill in practical astrology. Nor was she content with this once only to go to his house, again and a third time out of the great good feeling with which she honored him in following years, whilst according to her habit she was accustomed to pass over there to breathe the cooler air, in the evening or on horseback, or in a chariot ordered with him, with whose conversation she was not a little delighted, to be called almost beneath the royal dignity except that the extraordinary gifts of his mind and his very great learning had deserved this special favor, and that he might come to the court more frequently than from modesty he would have dared, most benignantly encouraged him by inviting him to come altogether. As to this library, it pleases me here to interpose a few words. I may rightly say that if we look at his library, scarcely any one in a private station, even amongst the nobility indeed in all of England at that time, perhaps had a greater number of books, or kept in better order, if we consider the material and arguments as to everything knowable, especially in philosophy, mathematics, and chemical art. For it consisted of four thousand volumes, which he had collected with incredible industry and the greatest expense, according to the proportion of his means, gathered together during forty years here and in other countries. Out of these, seven hundred were written by hand in various languages. There were, in addition, great ones of ancient charters and deeds, as to the families of princes and great men, both of Wales and Ireland, 
and also with proofs of doing service by which they had yielded themselves to the protection and favor of our former kings, in due form and the seals appended, also deeds relating to Anglican antiquities, and the foundation of monasteries, and a pile relating to the revenue of the monks inhabiting them, and a heap of other ancient seals placed separately in a chest. How great and how rich the library furniture, or to be envied by princes! Our forefathers, the heralds, had known how best to estimate their value and their extraordinary use, and the keepers also of the royal archives placed in the Tower of London, who were wont to spend whole days in the House of Dee in exploring them and copying them. All these, from great love of the antiquities of his country, he magnanimously destined to be placed at some future time in the public archives of the kingdom, that there they might be in all future ages and for the perpetual use of antiquaries. But sad fate interfered with his generous and pious intention, which I shall afterwards relate in its proper place. To the noble furniture of the library there appertained a not moderate accumulation of mathematical instruments and machines, also those which at that time had not been brought into common use, as well as those which by his own ingenuity amended and reformed he had brought into a better condition, amongst which, that I may omit the rest, were a quadrant and a staff, the semi-diameter of it being five feet, but of this ten accurately marked with divisions of the globe of Mercator, amended and improved by the help of new observations, by means of which he had inserted the places and motions of the comets, which appeared at their proper time, the octave, the ninth and tenth of their spheres, according to the hypothesis of the theory of Perbachius, ornamented with a horizon and brass meridian, mariners, compasses of various kinds, and a fabricated to find the variation, and lastly a clock, which in that age was held almost for a miracle, adapted to measure the second minutes of the hour. Concerning the laboratories or chemical offices will be afterwards described. In the year 1577, the comet shone in the heavens, in observing which D gave his diligent attention, but those observations have altogether perished, perhaps without any loss to astronomical science, by no means after those of Tycho Brahe to be desired. But concerning his skill in celestial learning, so highly was the opinion fixed in the breast of his friends that they thought no one could better interpret than he the extraordinary significance of this portent, discanting upon which Queen Elizabeth often heard him not without great pleasure. A panic terror had seized upon the minds of nearly all, as if, though not a certain destruction to the human race, at least fatal evils and most dire ends of things whereby it pretended from its malignant influence to England and the regions adjacent to it. In the following year, viz. 1578, when the Queen was laboring under the sharpest pains arising from an immoderate flow of humors, and had scarce received any assuagement from her own medical attendance, D was sent, provided with royal letters and the means of journeying to certain celebrated professors of medicine, 
both in the neighborhood and also to some living in the extreme provinces of Germany, that with them he might confer and take advice for restoring the health of the queen, a hundred days being precisely assigned for completing the journey. But with what success when D judged that on account of his prudence that he was to be concealed from him, I am easily persuaded, as I believe, that the queen was entirely restored to health before his return." Howsoever the thing turned out, the prompt mind of D to obey the commands of the queen could not fail to be most pleasing to her. D in every way and by earnest endeavor, as to him looking around at the circumstances from all points of view, his sagacious genius suggested, bestirred himself more and more to increase and conciliate the favor and benevolence of the queen towards himself. He exhibited to the queen, giving into her hands at her palace in Richmond, in the month of October in the year 1580, two large rolls beautifully copied on parchment containing the hydrographical and geographical chart of certain transmarine regions, the right of possessing which he proceeded to assert from documents and testimonies which he brought forward and arguments thence deduced. That affair as was the custom when anything of great importance was involved in it, was demanded to be examined and investigated by that most wise and illustrious man, Baron Burley, the treasurer of England. But he, at the first glance at the proposition, clearly appeared to have little favoured it, or to have looked on it with benevolent indulgence, so a more complete and closer examination afterwards confirmed the opinion first formed upon it with a judgment not precipitate or rash therefore after a few days he took care that those rolls should be returned to d not however without great praise and approval of his industry and zeal which truly the inventor most richly deserved but to others of so great value did it seem to have the maritime coasts of africa and america fully explored as far as the experience of sailors and the skill of mathematicians could aid it, that they greatly desiring to purchase the graphic delineation of that chart, made an offer of the sum of one hundred pounds sterling, which, however, D generously declined. But after the death of D, Sir Robert Cotton, knight of the golden spurs and a baronet, a most diligent collector above all others of British antiquities and of other precious things at whatever price, acquired that very chart, to be kept in his incomparable library, where it now is under Augustus I. With this title in the catalogue, I have before noted that it was published at Oxford in the year 1698, quote, a geographical map of America, Africa, and the regions situate within the Arctic Pole by John Dee in the year 1580. The emendation of the calendar being decided on by the authority and order of Gregory the Thirteenth, the Roman pontiff, the advice in the work of Lilly and other mathematicians was conjoined. This was in the year 1582, when certainly it appeared from the procession of the equinoxes 
which the Nicene and Alexandrian fathers had altogether ignored, and from the lunations recurring in each nineteen cycles, and the disparity shown by comparing them with the true solar years, the new and the full moon, on which the solemn paschal festival solely depends, the celestial appearances showed themselves to the eyes of all not to correspond." D. thinking that, if it could be done, the reformation of the calendar ought to be entered upon, made more accurate calculations, so that being admitted into England, it might be put to common in public use, most eagerly desired and endeavoured to it by the most intense study. For which reason, authorised by the royal command, he was at great pains to publish a short treatise, truly very learned, written in the English idiom, deduced out of certain principles of astronomy, of which I possess a perfect copy together with the figures and maps, concerning the reformation of the common calendar in the civil and Julian year of Queen Elizabeth in the year of 1583. He took care it should be shown by the proposed method that by those eleven days from the time of the Christian epoch by which, according to the interiors of the year, he anticipated the form and motion of the vernal equinox, should not all be taken away together, but to avoid confusion and too great a gap, by what means he could touch it without serious inconvenience, that the lessening of those days might be made gradually by five months shortened in the following way, that May should contain only twenty-eight days, June twenty-nine, July twenty-eight, the same as the Augustan, finally September twenty-nine, without any of the festival days or the movable, or the pleading days, in which forensic causes in term as it is called, next following the Holy Trinity by change from their own places. This proposal or document or advice, when the royal councillors had determined from their own caution that it ought neither to be admitted with precipitate haste nor altogether rejected, they sent it to be discussed by three most eminent mathematicians, viz. Thomas Diggs, Henry Saville, and John Chambers. But these, having come to a decision, unanimously thought it would have been far better if the vernal equinox had been brought back to the time and condition in which it was standing about the year of the birth of Christ, only ten days out of respect for the Synod of Nice, which enacted by its own sacred authority that this paschal solemnity should be observed at the appointed time, and lest that superfluous eleventh day being taken away out of the month of September, the ordinary proportion of the calendar received in the other countries of the Christian world should be disturbed, should be deservedly appointed, and to agree with the truth of the motions of the celestial bodies as computed by astronomers, and that it was indeed very possible that the idea and type of the calendar for that year, viz. 1583, certain parts being accepted, compiled by D, was without any manifest error for the future, provided that certain rules as to the bisextal years in certain whole centuries should be enacted after a correct calculation, lest the equinox, restored to its former place, in a long series of years, should again be moved from thence. The rest, which do not belong to this place, I omit to copy. 
Note, I have taken care to compare this relation with the criticisms of it, of the most learned man, John Gravius, Saville Professor of Astronomy in the University of Oxford in the London Philosophical Transactions for the month of October in the year 1699. On which Baron Burley, with his associated councillors, passed a disapproval, and gave judgment after frequent consultations being held. Influenced by political reasons, they preferred to adhere to the ancient error. However, nothing, as I think, of inconvenience or danger was to be feared than with the Roman Church in a most innocent matter rightly to be wise, for thus to think it must be said with all due reverence towards these most wise men, as if any one would from it in be induced to favor the arrogant papal power and give in his adhesion to the so-called universal Christian church. Thus, with the decrees and ordinances of the same church, and equally with their superstitions and corruptions in which the truth and faith of the Christian religion are injured to an outrageous degree, with dogmatic assertions, and finally with tyranny and usurpation of the rights of princes and bishops, were they very greatly hostile, and were clearly irreconcilable. But so magnificently did its author think of this little work, that afterwards he dared to reprove the neglect of the bishops towards him, as if a vicarious worker had performed that office which was proper to them from the ancient foundation of the church, and upon whom it was incumbent from their office, considering the same, to take care of the thing by every means, to supervise it diligently, and to govern it. Hitherto, when D was occupied in investigating curious arts and hunting after the innermost secrets of natural philosophy and also the mysteries of celestial wisdom above what is lawful for mortals to aspire to, he had worked alone. But at the beginning of the previous year, or thereabouts, as from the circumstances of the times being compared to it, is permitted to conjecture, for neither can I precisely define the time, Edward Kelly, a young man of twenty-five or twenty-six years, being attracted by the fame of Dee, sought his friendship. From the similarity of their studies, the faith, the industry, and the skill of this new stranger, especially in chemical operations and experiments, which he possessed above the common herd of philosophers, with great outward show, of whom the spirits predicted he would afterwards be the artificer or worker of nature, the inner chambers of the earth being explored, D had taken to himself, having previously proved him, and in a short time Kelly was admitted as a guest, as though fallen from heaven. Now, therefore, D, having auspiciously obtained an associate, especially suitable and convenient according to the genius and plan of his life, for that which for so many years of his past life he had without intermission pursued, he dreamed that there would be nothing inaccessible, nothing impervious, nothing impossible to their conjoined deliberations, by a most pleasing delusion of his mind, and ensnared by the fallacies of a hurtful and impious curiosity. Also concerning Kelly, who in this astonishing drama performed not the smallest part, as it were, from superabundance of material, is here necessarily brought in. But the other things which relate to him will be reserved to the end of this narration. 
Edward Kelly was born in Worcester, the 1st of August in the year 1555. Some will have it that he was a quack doctor in his native city, but others, what to me seems more like the truth, that he was by profession an ordinary scribe. The business really pertains to writers of deeds and securities and copying of wills. Here, having wrongly used his ability and being clearly guilty of fraud, suffered the punishment of having his ears cut off at Lancaster, which place, having left an account of his disgrace, turning to other employment, he applied himself to the study of chemistry, from which he flattered himself that he should accumulate immense wealth, because he was studious of the gold-making art. Nor did his curiosity confine itself within the borders of the honest and the right, for it was proved that he... Note, see the famous book of that eminent man, John Weaver, whose title is Ancient Funeral Monuments, published at London in the year 1631, pages 45-46, where many proofs and documents are given as to the truth, and that without, that this thing really took place. Having taken up the corpse of some one recently dead out of the sepulchre, consulted the infernal spirit evoked for the purpose upon the matters proposed, so that no doubt can be left that he had entered into the pact with the demon. Now, from that time, in which he had insinuated himself into the friendship of D, frequent appearances of evil spirits were made to be both present at the same time, whom... D, being deluded in a most horrible manner, through the greatest folly thereafter as long as life lasted, believed to be good angels of God, sent from heaven to illuminate his mind with clearer rays of divine wisdom and with the knowledge of future events. For he was wont to beseech God with most fervent and often repeated prayers, that being gifted with wisdom he might attain to the faculty of understanding the secrets of nature." not yet revealed to men, nor did he abstain from declaring openly that from his youth upwards God had implanted in his heart a zealous and insatiable desire of arriving at that truth, that this was the scope and end of his studies, that at length God inspiring him, he being fully instructed, might attain to the true philosophy, the treasure of heavenly wisdom and the science of pure truth. Hence he would be the messenger and administrator of the divine will, newly to be revealed to men by his unwearied vigils, genius, philosophical and mathematical studies, yea, and from his piety and continual prayers, not for the glory of God as he clamorously and earnestly pretended, but rather from self-seeking, with overmuch confidence in himself, easily persuading himself with intolerable arrogance." When he was unwilling to be wise according to the dictates of right reason and by the sacred scriptures, but had eagerly sought by an unlawful and impious ambition to surpass the powers of the human mind, by the just judgment of God being left to himself and given over to the arbitrament of his own will, he became the sport, the laughingstock, and the prey of demons to whose wiles and illusions, without any distrust, yea, most greedily embracing them, by so great a solicitation he had rendered himself apt and easy. Those actions, under which name conferences with evil spirits are called, began on the twenty-second day of December, 1581, being comprehended in five books of the Mysteries. 
as yet not published, in which Dee had learned from spirits the way of fabricating and accurately working out the form of the sacred table, of delineating the seal, as it is called, of God, and he describes by what previous rites and preparations they could obtain visitations and conversations, bringing them out one by one together with an appendix which he finishes on the 23rd day of May, 1583. These writings being hidden in the secret part of a certain chest, which in that fatal fire of the city had escaped safe, as formerly told to me, Sir Elias Ashmole, a most eager investigator of that sort of things, I know not by what means he obtained it, most carefully preserved, which are now kept in the museum at Oxford. But in these, as in the other papers which are found in the Cottonian Library, and which the revered and most learned man, Merrick Cassabon, son of Isaac, published at London, 1659, D. wrote with his own hand the history of those years, each being accurately noted according to his custom, both as to circumstances of things and of time. The Cottonian Papers, to which is prefixed the following title, Quote, the sixth book of the mysteries and the parallel of the sacred first fallow land, take their beginning from the twenty-eighth day of May, 1583, five days after the last action, i.e., the last seance held with spirits on the twenty-third day of the same month, following in regular order the appendix mentioned above. These, not bound together in one volume, but divided into various parts according to the purport of the matter there treated of and searched out, are stitched together apart, here and there befouled with mildew and moisture, as if a long time before hidden in a small box, and scarcely legible in the future, unless some opportune accident had brought them to light. In one of the preceding actions, which took place on the 21st day of November in the year 1582, D. most obstinately asserted positively that a clear and transparent stone of a circular form, as he often calls it, or a crystal, in which apparitions are in future to be made, and voices wanted for oracles were to be produced, had been delivered by an angel from these learned priests. Note, at the end of the fourth book of the Mysteries, he says that there on that day he had seen an angel, about as big as a boy, towards the west window of the museum, holding that stone in his hand, from whom, being ordered that he should go thither that he might receive it, he perceived it to be cold and hard, but shining clear and glorious. The same thing at Prague, in the year 1584, having called to witness the most sacred divine being under a most horrible curse, with the greatest confidence, he asserted, adding that that crystal was of such value and virtue that no wealth of earthly kingdom could be compared with it as being equal to it, nor so dignified, which he afterwards showed to William de Sancto Clemente, ambassador of the king of Spain, as well as to Jacob Curtius, the Caesarian counsellor, having produced also the fourth book in manuscript, in which he states by what means, the angel bestowing it, it had come into his possession. D. does not describe what sort of a movement he made, but that he appeared somewhat arrogant or proud, in whom were so many and various forms, stirred with various movements, and so many sights were shown at the same time, he gives with a great appearance of truth. 
But if it were not altogether the same, at least to me it seemed equal and alike destined to the same diabolical uses, for thus, being then present, I believed, which I recollect to have seen exposed for sale, with a large quantity of magical appliances and magical books at a public auction which was held in London in November 1694, perhaps at the same time with the glass vessel containing in its hollow half a gallon, if it be lawful, so to speak, with swelling out in roundness, and as the masters of these horrible mysteries pretend that it is possible that the faculty of intuition should be given, if anything appeared in it not promiscuously to all, but to those only rightly initiated. To this office, Kelly seemed especially suitable, and was installed by D. now seized with the most foolish credulity and aberration thence brought into his mind, as the closest confidant and constant friend, Uriel advising it, a mutual agreement being entered into, and an annual pension of fifty pounds being assigned to him, that he was to undertake the office and ministry of inspector, in English, seer or scryer in future actions. In the summer of the year 1583, there came into England Albertus Alasco, a Pole, Palatine of Seradia, descended from an ancient and illustrious family, and endowed with excellent gifts of mind and great love of literature, to visit Queen Elizabeth, of whose great wisdom universal report had spread, and praises throughout the whole of Europe, and to honour her admirable virtues with the most humble attentions and respect near her and in her presence. He was received by her with all the honour, courtesy, and favour which either the laws of hospitality towards noble foreigners were wont to show, or the laws of good fashion and the customs of princes prescribed. The Queen's example, or command of the Oxonians having followed it, they entertained with him with learned and elegant conversations and speeches. The scholastic exercises, treasures of genius and learning, preserved in their libraries in honor of so great a guest, in like manner most promptly shown to him in consideration of his dignity and merit, not to say beyond his merit. But out of all those then in England, most famous for the report of their learning, he esteemed no one more than D., or whose friendship he cultivated with greater diligence, whether taking a great liking to him from his flatteries, or being captivated by his excessive love of the secrets of nature which D., now having obtained a congenial hearer, had boasted were discovered by him. But whilst D. by chance was present at court on the twelfth day of July, the Earl of Leicester, having approached him, said that after two days he, together with Albertus Alasco, would dine with him. D. candidly confessed forthwith that he had not sufficient money wherewith to prepare a repast worthy of so great guests, unless his household silver plate were first pledged or sold which, as soon as the queen had knowledge of it, she, without any delay, out of her royal liberality, presented him with forty golden pieces, commonly called angels, on account of the likeness of an angel formerly impressed on the reverse side. From this time, as I have said, Lasco, being caught by the flatteries of D, or rather demented by tricks, gave himself up wholly into his power, and then, 
permission being first asked of the spirits, was soon admitted into this mystic and impious society, and was present at the actions at Mortlake. To that pass indeed, by reason of his credulous character becoming his own self-deceiver, that the daemons, that he might the more closely adhere to these horrible rites, easily conjoled his ambition with a vain hope and expectation of obtaining the chief power in his country, enticing him with fair words, that he would be king, not of Poland alone, but also of another kingdom, i.e., first of Poland, and then of another, viz. Moldovia, and under whom great changes in the universal world would be begun, and that by him under the banner of the cross the Jews would be converted, and the Saracens and Gentiles be conquered by him. After that, D. from fear, lest, as he had been persuaded by the seducing spirits, plots had been prepared by Lords Cecil and Walsingham, which they feigned were against him and Lasco, whereby he would be condemned to death, by the capital punishment of the sword, had arranged with the above-mentioned Palatine as to making a journey into Poland. He privately, without having first asked permission to depart out of the kingdom, took his departure from Mortlake on the 21st of September, 1583, together with another wife, Jana Fromanda, a woman of a good and ancient family, whom, as his second wife, he had married on the 5th of February, 1578, his son, Arthur, a boy of four years and other children, Kelly, his coadjutor, and his wife, whom he had married at Mortlake in the same year, and the servants. Lasco and his attendants, in the middle of the Thames, as it was mutually appointed the better to conceal their flight being taken into boats, one and another at London quickly made for Greenwich on a stormy night, and from thence to seven or eight miles beyond Greenwich, where ships are stopped to pay customs, to be searched by custom house officers, embarked on a Danish ship, the other being destined to receive the servants, the baggage, and the horses with greater convenience, a courtesy upon which they had also agreed, about to sail thence into Holland. But the ships being nearly driven into quicksands by contrary winds, they escaped shipwreck which threatened them, not without the greatest labour of the sailors. From thence being carried in fishing boats in the bay of Queensborough, situated on the coast of Kent." When they were about to disembark from the side of the vessel, the sails of that in which they sat, D, Lasco, and Kelly, from the tossing about the sail-yards of each interlacing and locking together, it was within a little, but that all had been immersed together. The vessel being filled with water up to their knees, which Kelly, with a certain vessel, endeavoured to raise up and bail out, at length, though, with great difficulty, nor with less danger, safe and joyful they landed at the town, in which rest was to be taken until the storm ceased raging. After five days, having travelled over the sea, they arrived at Brielle in Holland. Not long after the departure of D, 
the inhabitants and neighbors by whom he had become more and more suspected of sorcery and magic, ran violently into his house, of whom some pillaged the library, carrying off very many volumes, tearing out the printed matter and defacing them with their hands. Others, in a like manner, attacked the laboratory, breaking the furnaces and the chemical vessels of glass and metal. This most severe loss brought about by that most barbarous robbery, he never ceased most bitterly to deplore, for that, at immense expense and excessive labor, through so many years he had collected that splendid array. But he mostly greatly grieved that a bottle containing some sweet substance, weighing about four pounds like gum, of a somewhat brown color, had then and there perished. <laughs>